Good evening. I want to start by saying I hope all of you have a Merry Christmas. I will not be with you next week. I always try to take a little time at Christmas to go back home and be with my family. You'll have Blake every time next Sunday. He'll do both services in the morning and the evening. He's shaking his head. Yes, you are. So it's too late to back out now. And I know that'll be a treat. Blake is such an awesome preacher, and I'm so glad that he's able to fill in for me. So glad he's back on staff now. This is, this is great. Uh, thank you for being here tonight as we talk about a subject that's kind of an elephant in the church, or at least it has been over the years. What do we do with holidays? You know, many of us celebrate Christmas, for instance, in our home, and uh, we go all out with a tree and presents and decorations and all that, but when it comes to the church, you know, and it's almost the other extreme, or it has been over the years. And so what do we do about it? What, what is our approach to Christmas, Easter, other holidays? How should we view these? And what is logical and reasonable? You know, I want to be biblical. You know that. I always want to be biblical. But there's a lot of people who think they're biblical, but they're also not logical or reasonable. And I want to be logical and reasonable along with being biblical. And so when we talk about eating meat and celebrating holidays, these two things go together, no doubt. I don't know about you, but I eat meat over the holidays way too much. But it's also biblical because you see Paul make a connection. And I think we can make the connection between eating meat and celebrating holidays. It seems like over the years we've had to add disclaimers to whatever the holiday was that we were talking about in the church. So if it's Thanksgiving, we say, well, we should be thankful every day of the year. If it's Easter, we say we don't just celebrate the resurrection one Sunday out of the year. We celebrate it every Sunday, right? If it's Christmas, we don't celebrate the birth of Jesus just one time on December 25th. We celebrate it every day of the year. And, and I'm not saying that those disclaimers are wrong by any stretch. Uh, I'm not saying that they're illogical or unreasonable. I'm just saying that sometimes in the church, our doctrine can kind of be like higher math. We can come to the right conclusion or the right answer, but we maybe didn't show our work really well. And so I think we need to do a better job sometimes of showing our work. I remember when I first became a Christian, I went with some other Christians to a local church for like a gospel meeting. And we walked up to the doors of this church and the group that I was with got very angry because there were wreaths hanging on the door. In their minds, this church was apostate. You know, they were condemnable because, heaven forbid, they had wreaths on the door. And I guess they thought we would go in and be singing Happy Birthday Jesus, and it really bothered them. And I thought, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I'll investigate. I'll look at it a little further. Maybe I'm, I'm off base here. And I, I haven't found that that was logical or reasonable. And I think we can do better in our approach at times. Like with any biblical topic or subject, this is an issue that relates to our spirituality, and so therefore we've got to think deeper. There are many Christians who may not follow logic and reason when it comes to celebrating holidays. There are those who are adamantly opposed, to, uh, for instance, celebrating Halloween, believe it has pagan roots, that it's a demonic or satanic holiday. I can tell you this. My kids never treated it like that. When my kids dressed up like SpongeBob and went door to door getting candy, that's what they saw it as, an opportunity to dress up and get candy. But some believe because a holiday may have pagan roots, that it should be shunned. And if your conscience will not allow you to celebrate a holiday, then don't do it. It's very simple. Don't violate your conscience. That's a biblical premise, right? 
However, that doesn't give us the right to bind that on somebody else. Or if somebody like me is fine with celebrating a holiday, I have no right to push that on somebody else either. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. I will say this, though. A lot of times our reasoning when it comes to uh, not celebrating holidays, uh, we're a little faulty in our reasoning. For instance, those who may be opposed to celebrating certain holidays because they believe they had pagan roots might still celebrate birthdays. Do you know the celebration of birthdays is rooted in paganism? Do you know that the Jewish schools would not allow the celebration of birthdays because they believe it promoted paganism and promoted idolatrous worship? Our days of the week are rooted in paganism. Thursday, for instance, is Thor's day, literally, which is a reference to mythological god Thor. Guys, if you take your wife out to dinner on Valentine's Day, you're celebrating a holiday that is rooted in paganism. Just because a holiday meant something a long time ago doesn't mean that it still means that today, right? Holidays, days, they evolve, they, they change over time. So that what they meant long ago doesn't necessarily mean that that's what they mean today. Someone might say that Halloween has roots in paganism. But as I said, my children didn't see that. My children didn't think that they were dressing up like their favorite superhero so that they could celebrate a satanic holiday. So it is an opportunity to dress up and go get candy. So we have to admit that there are, there's an evolution in these days. And uh, there are also consistency issues when we get into that. Here's something that we have to get straight from the very beginning. We have to understand and admit that certain practices evolve over time to the point that their original significance is lost or at least altered dramatically. Paul would often take the old and turn it around and redeem it. We see that over and over again. Something that I've talked about us doing over and over again when it comes to certain holidays, like this one, like Christmas. Let's redeem it instead of avoiding it. Paul didn't avoid it. Paul often took old things and turned them around and redeemed them. The Bible speaks of this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Certain practices, customs, and traditions change, and Paul alludes to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for whom all are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? 
For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So the practice of eating meat that was previously sacrificed to idols, that was a hotly debated topic in Paul's time. That's why he's approaching it here. A meat sacrifice would become or would be made to an idol, and after a portion of that meat was consumed by the sacrificial flames or by the priest, the rest of it would be sold as a regular food in the marketplace. And so a controversy ensued. Is the meat contaminated because it was previously dedicated to an idol? Or is it safe to eat because it's just meat? Here's Paul's answer to the controversy. An idol's nothing. An idol is nothing. An idol can do nothing. It's imaginary. It's absolutely powerless and can add nothing to one's life. And for the person who knows this, his conscience is not offended in any way. Why would it be? He doesn't believe in an idol. He believes in the one true God, so therefore it doesn't bother him a bit. However, Paul is also aware that there are others that aren't on that level. There are others that it violates their conscience because he says that they are not yet quite mature enough to understand that or handle it. They are the weaker brother, he says. But the idea that the meat was, was previously dedicated to idol doesn't change the meat in any way, doesn't change its consistency, doesn't change its flavor or anything of that nature. In other words, whatever the meat was previously associated with doesn't magically contaminate it. But Paul, as I said, recognizes the fact that not everyone may feel this way, that there are some who struggle with the notion of consuming meat that'd been part of a pagan ceremony. Paul refers to them as weak only because They have not reached that point of maturity in their faith where they can distinguish between meat that is fit to eat. And so Paul gives a word of caution here. If you are gathered with folks such as this, then just refrain from eating the meat. It's not that big a deal. This is not a doctrinal issue. This is a meat issue. And if it causes your brother to stumble, then just avoid it. You may have to give up your rights, and and that's okay. Because Paul constantly harped on the fact that we should keep the bond of peace and the unity of the Spirit. That was most important. A similar scenario could be me. When I was in the Catholic Church, we, we, the priest would bless water. We would have holy water that you would dip your hand in. You'd make the sign of the cross. Now, you wouldn't want to drink that water while everyone, after everyone had dipped their hand in it. But previously you could. But a Catholic would never think of doing that. You would never drink that water that had been blessed by the priest because that was for the dipping of your hands, making the sign of the cross. But for me, now, I can see how that would have been fine. The blessing of it doesn't change the consistency of the water, doesn't change it into anything else. It's still water, still fine to drink, right? But for some, that wasn't the case. For some, they didn't, they, they didn't drink that water because it would be a violation of their conscience. So if, if we're gathered together with one or, or many babes in Christ whose conscience will not allow them to do a certain thing, then it's okay if we give up our rights in that moment. Now, I don't think that we should use the weaker brother argument as an excuse constantly. You know, I, I think at some point there should be a maturation, Right? And so the weaker brother doesn't, have, doesn't get to demand that everyone um, just give up everything for them constantly. Eventually, there needs to be a growth and a maturity. 
But Paul is saying somebody doesn't have to be wrong here. Somebody doesn't have to be right. It's a meat issue. doesn't matter. If it's going to cause your brother to stumble, give it up. Who cares? What all this means as it pertains to Christmas and Easter or, or celebrating certain holidays is in the case of 1 Corinthians 8, some can engage in such holidays with a clear conscience. Some have any problem with that whatsoever. I had no problem dressing my kids up for Halloween, letting them go door to door. But for others, that's a problem. And I recognize that some of my brothers and sisters in Christ struggle with it, and therefore, I'm not going to make a controversy about it. I'm not going to bind it on them because I'm not going to make it a matter of fellowship. In matters such as this, peace and love must prevail, Paul says. And Paul approaches this in Romans chapter 14. He talks about the meat issue again as he talks about religious scruples. And in Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, he says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. In other words, don't draw lines of fellowship that God hasn't drawn. Don't disfellowship somebody that God has accepted. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Again, Paul's greatest concern is unity. That was a major theme in all of his writings, keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Some out of conviction chose not to eat certain meats, and that's okay. Others saw nothing wrong with eating certain meats, and that's okay as well. It was a scrupulous matter. Again, it wasn't a doctrinal matter. It was a meat matter. It wasn't a matter of truth or, or, or doctrine. Therefore, love one another, accept one another, move on together, he says. Someone doesn't have to be wrong here. You're not wrong to eat, but you are wrong to bind your convictions on someone else. If you, can feel, if you feel convicted that you, you shouldn't eat meat, then you don't have to. But you can't demand that others do the same. So Paul was warning these Christians not to draw lines that God hasn't drawn. Don't disfellowship somebody that God has accepted. Then, you notice 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And beginning in verse 23, it reads, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the believers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? 
Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Here again, Paul is approaching the topic of honoring an idol by eating meat that had once been sacrificed to an idol. And the meat had lost its pagan significance. But verses 23 and 24 set the tone for how to approach such issues. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. More important than your liberty, or more important than getting your way, is unity. That must always come first. So if it runs the risk of offending someone, then don't do it. It's not worth it. Do what edifies. Do what's profitable. I think Romans 14 allows for the celebration of holidays. I think it does. If I want to celebrate Halloween, then I can do that. If I want to celebrate Easter, if I want to celebrate Christmas, it doesn't mean that I think that Jesus was actually born on December the 25th or, or that Easter comes at exactly that same time every year that, uh, that, our, that our world celebrates it. But I can celebrate those days. I think the church can celebrate those days. I think Romans 14 allows for that. But if it bothers the conscience of some, the most important thing is to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, right? That's the most important thing. If I want to hunt Easter eggs with my kids, I can do that. If we want to have an Easter egg here, uh, hunt here, we can do that. Uh, if, we want to, if we want to engage in certain practices that are related to that holiday, I believe that's, that's fine. You may feel strongly that some of these holidays shouldn't be celebrated. You have that right. And I think that when it comes to church-wide things like this, I think the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace has to win out. It's not a doctrinal matter. It's a meat issue. It may be a conscience issue, but it's certainly a scrupulous matter about which days we celebrate, but the most important thing, as Paul says, is to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So just to add a little more confirmation to what I've been saying, I want you to look at Esther chapter 9. And in the book of Esther chapter 9, beginning in verse 27, it reads like this. Since the Jews established and made a custom for themselves, their descendants, and for all those who allied themselves with them, so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to be neglected by the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. The Jews created a holiday. They did. The Feast of Purim is nowhere in the Jewish tradition as sanctioned by God. God didn't command it, but also God didn't condemn it. The Jews completely came up with this one on their own. They wanted to celebrate further, so they created a holiday, the Feast of Purim. The interesting thing about Purim is that, again, nowhere did God command it, but like the Passover, Purim was not among the list of those holidays to be celebrated in the Torah, but there didn't seem to be an assumption on the part of the Jews that they could not add it to the feast. It was added. And they celebrated it. Another example would be the Feast of Dedication. Between the the periods, between Malachi and Matthew, the intertestamental period, we see the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah 
as a celebration created to commemorate Judah Maccabee and his Jewish forces retaking the temple and rededicating it to God after the Greeks had defiled it. And in John chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, it says, At that time, the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple area in the portico of Solomon. Jesus was there at the feast of dedication. He was spending time in the temple during the feast of dedication, like his Jewish brethren, commemorating the rededication of the temple to God. But we find nothing in Scripture that presents these holidays, Purim and Hanukkah, in a negative light, nor do we find anything that even remotely suggests that God's people were condemned for establishing them or celebrating them. So what am I saying? Break out the trees and set up the nativity? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, let's remove the elephant from the room And let's look at this logically and reasonably, and let's come to some conclusions that maybe we haven't thought about before. We can celebrate the birth of Jesus. We can celebrate it every day of the year. We can celebrate it one time of year. Hopefully we celebrate it every day of the year. But just because we also celebrate it one day of the year doesn't mean that we don't celebrate it every other day of the year. You know, I celebrate my marriage every day. Some days I'm better at it than others. But one day a year, my wife and I celebrate our anniversary. We can walk and chew gum here. We can do both. Just because I celebrate my marriage one day out of the year doesn't mean that I don't celebrate it every day out of the year. It doesn't mean that I neglect my wife every other day. You can celebrate the birth of Jesus yearly, and you can celebrate it daily. You can celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every Sunday, every day, and you can celebrate it once a year. The two events are biblical. I think in all of this this talking about whether we should celebrate or not, we forget they both happened. Maybe Jesus wasn't born on December the 25th. Maybe he didn't rise on the first Sunday after the first vernal equinox. Is that how it goes? Maybe it doesn't fall exactly like that. But he did die. And he did rose again. He did rise again, I should say. That's okay. I was an English major. It's okay to celebrate those. What's not okay is to purposely avoid them. I think that's wrong. It's okay to celebrate. I don't agree with talking about Jesus every Sunday of the year except the one that's closest to Christmas. I don't agree with avoiding the subject of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. I don't agree with stirring up unnecessary strife. I don't agree with spending all my time arguing and fighting over whether Jesus was actually born on December the 25th, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I want to redeem these holidays. At a time when people are commercializing these holidays, at a time when people are focused on flying reindeer and Santa Claus or Cadbury eggs and bunnies, I want to focus on why Jesus came to this earth in the first place. I want to talk about what the resurrection means for us. The birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus are the two greatest events in the history of the world. No dispute. The two greatest events in the history of the world. Why would we not talk about them this time of year? Why would we not talk about them when the rest of the world is? If the rest of the world at least is giving some credence to it, I want to help them understand more about Jesus' birth and Jesus' resurrection. Because it's never wrong to talk about those things. So I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to talk about them more, not less. And I think we should as well. I think we should talk about it more. I think we should sing about it more. Thank you for leading that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. These songs are biblical. 
We don't have to sing them just at Christmas time. We can sing them any time of the year. If they're biblical, let's sing them. Let's rejoice in the fact that Jesus came. Let's rejoice in the fact that he rose again. I think all too often we're led a little bit by fear. I think in the history of the church, we've kind of been led by fear. And we focus so much on being anti-denominational, maybe, that we forget what we're about and what we should be about. And we're motivated by fear rather than what's biblical sometimes. It's never wrong to talk about Jesus. It's never wrong to talk about his birth. It's never wrong to talk about his resurrection. So let's talk more about him this time of year. Let's zero in on the birth of Jesus. Come Easter, we're going to zero in on his resurrection. Let's sing more about Jesus' birth and Jesus' resurrection. Let's, let's remove the elephant from the room and let's just be logical and reasonable in our approach. Let's be loving and patient and kind as well. But rather than avoiding the holidays because we're afraid of being too secular, let's redeem them and let's remind ourselves of what Christmas and Easter are all about. Can we do that? Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you came. We thank you that you rose again. And we thank you so much for what you coming to this earth has meant and still means. And we thank you for what the resurrection means for us. It means that we can be victorious, that we will rise again as well. God, may we help others understand the story of your birth and the story of your resurrection. May we celebrate it always. May we let it motivate us and guide us through this life as we go and be salt and light to the world around us. We love you, we thank you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So David's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you tonight, if we can pray with you and encourage you, if you're ready to take the next step in faith, I understand we have a heater in the baptistry now, so poor Jet Thornton who froze to that. Now you don't freeze anymore, so we can take care of that tonight as well. Whatever your need is, why don't you stand, come as we stand and sing.